0: come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space welcome to talk tank
1: hi you've reached the talk tank the official podcast of the lsc entrepreneur society where we delve into the minds of those who think live and breathe outside the box my name is Esther and I'll be your host for today. Today's episode is part of our Preneur series, where we steer clear of conventions and turn to the creative-hearted. We tune into the process behind the writers, the performers, and the visual storytellers. Do they confront us with reality or allow us to escape from it? Today's guest is Roderick van der Lee, one of the founders of Unseen Amsterdam, a contemporary photography fair praised by The Guardian, amongst many others, as the best loved of them all, known both for its intimacy and strong curatorial agenda. After curating for other international fairs, he's back this year to direct the ninth edition of Unseen. Before founding Unseen, Roderick went to business school, studied art history, and learned the tricks of the trade at auction house Christie's in London and Amsterdam's well-known photography museum Foam. Today he will give us insight into the fascinating industry, tell us what it's like to curate for such a dynamic art field, and answer some of the questions people ask him most. Roderick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, When we spoke last week, you told us a little bit about what you were like in your 20s. Can you give our listeners a mental image? What did you get up to and how did you end up finding your drive?
0: Oh, yes. Well, uh, I suppose my 20s can be cut in half. Um, The first... Well five, six, seven years were sort of a prolongation of my late teens. Um, in school i wasn't I wasn't uh, great at studying, so to speak. I mean academically, it took me a while to find uh, to find my groove. Um, I went to five different uh, middle schools or high schools um, I guess I just had other stuff on my mind, uh, having fun, making friends, being all over the place. Uh, and when I went to university, uh, for the first couple of years, that was, was kind of the same thing. I, I mean, I started studying law, um, which was a disaster for everyone involved. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to study abroad quite a bit as well. I did a semester at UMass, the University of uh, Massachusetts, which has um, a really nice uh, management uh, department, uh, which was great fun. And I did a summer at Columbia University, which was amazing. Um, and then when I started getting towards the end um, of my, uh, my study, I, I thought, well, you know, you're going to business school, you're going to have to business something. Um, and I realized that um, if I'm not particularly interested in something, I won't put in uh, too much effort, but if I do really like something, I'll put in 200%. So I figured um, it might be a sensible idea to uh, pick a field that I particularly enjoy. And at that point, I had a sort of student job at an auction house, which I I really enjoyed. Um, And I really liked um, the art aspect of it next to business. So I thought, well, I I know about business a bit through school, but maybe it'd be a good idea to know a bit more about um, art history as well. So I started studying history of art as well at the University of Amsterdam um, and uh, ended up at Christie's, uh, which was amazing. I was sort of in my late twenties and moved to London. And at that point I thought, well, you know, enough play. Um, maybe it's good to completely focus on my career for for a change. So, actually, moving to London was was quite nice because it it took me out of a, a really fun but you know incredibly social and busy environment, um, and allowed me to really focus on on my job.
1: That sounds like quite the history. Um, if we fast forward a little bit, can we? Can you take us back to how the idea was born uh, of Unseen and what made it an immediate success?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, one of the reasons I moved back from uh, London to Amsterdam was uh, despite the fact that I, I, I really liked uh, working at Christie's, uh, the, the the field was a bit um, conservative, traditional, so to speak, um, which, which fits it really well. But I thought, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to shape things a bit more. I'd like to try new forms, um, go off the beaten track. So I I moved back to Amsterdam um, with the idea of doing something in in photography and specifically contemporary photography, um, because in Amsterdam, there's there's a lot of uh, photographers who are forward thinking, sort of pushing the boundaries of the medium, uh, especially then. so I went back, started thinking of, of ways of doing that and simultaneously thought, well, you know, if you not unlike also studying history of art, if, if I want to get involved in a particular field, I'd, I'd like to know about it uh, more. So I took a job at FOAM, the photography museum, um, which enabled me to really, really quickly learn about what good photography is. Um, And on the side, I I started uh, doing projects of my own, um, which finally resulted in us, uh, meaning me, my company and uh, Foam, um, setting up Founding Unseen. And the idea behind that was that uh, on one hand, this was about 2008, 2009, um, which was sort of the economic crash. Um, and during an economic downturn in the art field, usually um, people buy established names. So it's, it's sort of a sure investment. It's a good way to um, park your money. Uh, there's very little risk involved. Um, and during periods like this, sort of young and up and coming isn't really performing as well. Um, but we figured that it'd be a shame not to give those young uh, up-and-coming rising stars uh, a proper podium. So we ended up setting up on scene because at the traditional fairs there wasn't a lot of room for all the exciting new things um, that were happening uh, which made sort of economic sense Uh, but still we figured um, let's try and set something up that goes uh, against the stream. and at that point, people loved it. I mean, it took us a few years to really set it up properly. Uh, and at that point, um, people had started getting a little bit, maybe bored with seeing the, uh, the, you know, the good, established names. Um, it was a high quality, but maybe not as exciting. So it was really nice to see for people uh, something fresh, something exciting, um, which was cast into a new form and we made extra effort to sort of present it in a, in a new form. Um, so usually when you organize a fair, you have um, a certain type of venue and you have a certain type of stand builders uh, that give you straightforward uh, white walled grids and we wanted to do something different. Uh, so we hired an architect instead of a, a stand builder to come up with, uh, with a design. We had everything made custom which was quite an investment, but it ended up paying off because the fair looked like nothing else around. And um, we made sure that the design of the fair and whatever we presented was sort of in line with the environment, with the city. Um, so it was, um, it was, a, it was a, a proper, well thought out start uh, with a clear mission. And I think people um, responded to it so well because it was so well thought out and um, it came from a sort of a good heart, so to speak. I mean, when you go into business with a museum, it's, um, you know, it's not going to be entirely profit driven um, because it's, it's a public institution and their mission is to, uh, well, not to earn money, but to present uh, great content. Um, and I think this in the end helped in ensuring that we wouldn't cut any corners to make a, a quick buck, but really do it, do it right. Uh, and I think that translated um especially to to critics um which which translated into great press coverage from the from the beginning
1: it definitely sounds like unseen owes its success to to its authenticity could you say that
0: yes i, I definitely think so i mean everyone that was involved was you know completely put their their hearts into it uh and it and it kind of shows um and um we made sure that it it would Sort of breathe the um, um, sort of the soul of the city uh, which which uh, <laughs> sounds a bit um, over the top, but uh, you know it 's that authenticity authenticity sometimes is a bit of a like a, a, a turbo term like like marketing, everything has to be authentic, but it really just means that. Uh, things come from the heart, and um, they evolve naturally from from their surroundings and and good intentions um, and it 's actually quite refreshing uh, as an approach when you build something to sort of let go of uh, industry standards or expectations and just really focus on, on on making or building something that that seems to seems to be right that seems to work, and that seems to um, provide something for, for uh, an environment. And in this case, it was sort of the rich cultural soil in regards to photography in Amsterdam, which, um, I mean, it's not as traditionally such a hub as, for instance, Paris or New York, which are, you know, have a huge photographic history of like 150 years. But certainly over the past few decades, Amsterdam has really proven to be um, a rich soil. I mean, we have um, some world-class photography museums here in the city. Uh, an organization like World Press Photo is is from Amsterdam, which is um, very highly regarded globally. Um, and you know, it's a great city to live for for photographers um, because of the sort of the creative and and um, free vibe. Um, and people here seem to seem to uh, like a specific kind of photography, so that translates into jobs for magazines, etc. So it was a rich soil for us to set something up.
1: I want to ask you a few questions on curating in general. I, I imagine it can be quite exciting considering the endless amount of talented artists and galleries out there. Uh, first of all, what is your favorite thing about curating?
0: That's an interesting question. Uh, I suppose there are many sort of layers to to that answer um, but what I particularly enjoy as a sort of a general um, thought on the subject is I love translating what excites me to other people so I love transferring that feeling of, of excitement of um, emotion that I feel when I see something new or, or fantastic um, i I'd, I'd like to transfer that feeling to someone else to share it with people, um, and I think that for me is the essence of, of curating um, so besides that essence you know in a, in a in a practical point of view, what I also really enjoy um, in curating when I do an exhibition, which is something different than a fair, but is is really delving into both the the mechanical side of of the medium but also the the purpose of, of the work with a with an artist themselves, so to basically just talk about their work. Why are they making it? You know, what are their um, their thoughts? What do they want to um, convey to the world? Um, and figuring out uh, a group of images that um, shows sort of a, a kaleidoscope or the entire width of what they're doing in a coherent way. Uh, but also tell a story with it. That is a story, that, a visual story that people might understand, but also really shows what their, what their intentions and what their work is about, to sort of show a bit of, 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 the, of the soul of the artist, so to speak. Um, when you're doing a fair, it's slightly different because you're not making an exhibition. Um, a fair, basically, as a business model, is, 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 is relatively straightforward. Um, you, you sell space to, to galleries um and they pay you not just for the space but also because you you bring a specific audience of collectors of other curators from institutions etc so it's a it's a transaction so especially with a fair like unseen which has a very particular medium of of showing where the 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 medium of photography in which direction it's it's heading um it, it might become a bit murky because there are certain elements that you want to show Um, So certain, for instance, artists that are doing just amazing stuff, really pushing the boundaries. But on the other hand, um, it's an economic transaction. So if, if we would only program the type of work that is so forward thinking that people like it, but they're not quite ready to buy it yet, then the fair won't be a success because people will pay to be there to participate. But um, they won't sell anything, so they'll have invested a lot of money, but not returned on that uh, investment. So you need to find the balance of what's really exciting, which give what you know, uh, will make people enthusiastic, but what will also make them sort of get out their their wallet. Um, so, so that's the balance. And I mean, um, the way I usually do it is uh, f- figuring out first which galleries, have a good eye for what's going on do you know what kind of artists do they represent and then invite them to participate and sometimes you have people that will contact you on their own Um, but my sort of steering ability is in inviting to people to to submit a proposal and then we have a selection committee uh, which does the actual selection so I'm, i'm not involved in that but i just have to make sure they have a a good pool of of high quality that excites me and then they have to translate that into a selection of 53 galleries, which then in turn will decide what goes on onto the walls, Uh, which is often quite nice because it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you have these ideas in your head, you know, who you've invited, you know, who's sent in a proposal for which artist, but then the magical moment comes uh, during the fair, during installation, when first the builders come in, they set up the walls and then slowly, but surely the galleries start coming in. And then within, sort of the time space um, of 24 hours, you'll have gotten the key to a huge empty venue. And 24 hours later, all of a sudden, there's all this amazing art on the wall and you get to see um, what the fair is actually like, which is quite magical.
1: This sounds like a really, really exciting process, to be honest, Um, especially those 24 hours.
0: Yeah, for me, that's sort of a, a magical, Uh, passage between a year of preparations uh, then slowly but surely materializing.
1: Earlier you briefly mentioned the economics of art and its value and you said that there are two questions people often ask you. So let's help our listeners out of their misery and I'm going to ask you to answer both if that's okay. Yep. The first question you often get is is this photograph a good investment? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, well, it's 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 nearly impossible to uh, to say. Um, you have to try and and um, make sure that as much of the photography that's or art that's at your fair uh, has the chance of of being a a good investment. Um, on the other hand, it's it's very difficult to say. And if people ask me sort of privately. Uh, is this a good investment? Um, I usually try to convey the idea that they shouldn't really buy it if it's an investment uh, only. I mean it's it's, it's kind of a, a lame answer but only buy, uh, buy what you love. Um, but we do really try to, to make an effort to uh, make as much as possible that's there uh, of a sort of economic sustainable uh, level, and this is this is hard to do. I mean, several years ago, the the director of Art Basel, which is the um, the number one contemporary and modern art fair in the world, um, said, you know, this is the, the top of the pyramid in terms of the contemporary art world. Um, we've gathered the best contemporary and modern art galleries in the world here um, at the best fair. Um, but still, um, more than half of, of what's on show here at the fair will have significantly lost in economic value in the next 10 years. Um, so even, even if you create all the optimal conditions um, for a good investment uh, by gathering the best of the best, that's still not sort of a guarantee that art will actually uh, increase in, uh, in value. And for me as well i mean i 'm involved in the business of uh, of the art world uh, the art market um, but still sort of the economic value of an artwork doesn't really determine its its entire value, so to speak. I mean something can be um, worth not a lot of money but still be an amazing piece of art so I encourage people to uh, to look beyond <laughs> just the economic value and and uh, that's why it's always good to to buy something that really speaks to you uh, because even if it becomes uh worth less then you'll still love it
1: i i couldn't agree more um to be honest so uh, the second thing that people have asked you before is should i just quit my job now and become a photographer
0: yes correctly um that, 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 that sort of stems from the idea, I suppose, of um, um, if you're committed to something, you have to give it your, your entire uh, focus uh, and be committed more than 100%. So how can you be committed um, if, if you still have a day job? Um, and I suppose that's, that's also strengthened by this um, m- myth of the struggling artist, um, but in truth, I, I always advise people not to quit their, their day job because um, um, it's much easier to to do, you know, to be an artist or a photographer alongside a good day job and uh, having, a, having a good income and being comfortable uh, than it often is when people try being a struggling artist for a long time and then trying to get a job and there isn't a lot uh, left to do. And also it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't necessarily really add to to your uh, artistic process. I mean, if you can do it, by all means, do it because you know what can be better than doing what you love all the time. But even for artists that are uh, photographers that are considered to be very successful, that uh, whose um, photographs command great prices of you know a lot of money, who have been bought into amazing museum collections. Um, it can still be very difficult to to earn a living um, and um yeah i mean it it doesn 't if you have a if you have a good day job and do photography you know at at other times like the weekend or whatever during holiday that that in no means sort of devaluates the work that you do just because you have a good day job so my advice usually is don 't quit your day job just really enjoy what you 're doing um and 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 you know it 's not about necessarily about the dedication to your work by quitting your job but it's about you know uh, your thought process and um uh, um how you think about your about the development of your own artistic process and there's no timeline for that so you know it's fine to do that uh, during weekends or in the evening just as long as you enjoy it and are happy with what you're doing
1: i think that's a really solid piece of advice um thank you Um, I think it would be safe to say that you would only buy photographs you absolutely love. Yes. So I'm wondering what proportion of the walls in your house are covered in art, and do you have a favorite photograph?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, funny thing is that uh, we've actually just started um, replacing a lot of the art that's on the wall with photography uh, for quite a, well, for a very long time, actually, considering my profession. Um, I didn't have photography on the wall, I, I bought the photographs, uh, and I enjoyed having them. But putting them on the wall um, was a bit much in the beginning because I was so invested into the subject matter during the day, and it was my it was my my job, so to speak. That it was kind of a palate cleanser to have something else to look at uh, in in the evenings. Um, but I, I've I've <laughs> I've now changed that. So. Um, all the walls are pretty much covered in in the house but now there's more photography up on the wall and um there's there's quite a a width of types of, of photography that i have up on the wall and that i that i like so um i can tell you about two uh separate pieces that i really like having um um, and most of the work for me that I enjoy has a sort of artistic merit. So it's, it's a great photograph to look at, but it also has sort of a personal story behind it, um, which, which it's kind of charged with. So one of them is a vintage print of vernacular photography, which means that it, it wasn't made by an artist. It's just sort of a useful photography that had a specific purpose. Um, it's not by an artist, so it, it's not signed or, or whatever, but it's, it's just a, it's a vintage print from the sixties, uh, uh, black and white of, um, a table where there's a pair of gloves and, and a newspaper. That's it. Sort of an abstract composition. Um, it's really nice to look at, but why I uh, especially like it is because, um, I bought it from a guy named Frido Tr- Trost. Um, he's not among us anymore unfortunately but he was um, a professor of photography at uh, the Rietveld Academy which is a famous art school here in Amsterdam and he became kind of disenchanted um, by what was going on in the contemporary artwork market that you know people were pushing talent sooner and sooner Um, and he became a bit disenchanted with the mechanics of You know forming a brand for a young artist Um, so he didn't like that too much and as a counterbalance for that um, he started and his love for photography he started collecting tons and tons of photography that had nothing to do with the name or the value of an artist so all sort of orphaned photography Um, and he managed over the course of a few decades to build up this gigantic collection which was several connected uh, garages In the city of harlem and he just had archive boxes stacked to the to the ceiling with you know the most diverse um, subjects so for erotic photography for instance uh, he would have 19th century japanese bondage photography all the way through to a box that i saw that said amateur polaroids from harlem in the 1970s so harlem new york Um, Just a massive collection and everything was for sale and it was all quite cheap. You know, um, I think that one of the most expensive works was it was a few hundred and the cheapest was, you know, uh, 25 cents. He had this trunk which said uh, Frito's trunk and every photograph in there was 25 cents and to me that's a reminder that Although I am involved in part of the entire ecosystem of the art market and uh, hyping names, etc., um, it, it's good to, to keep an attachment to the love of the object without sort of the hype attached. Uh, so that's one of the two artworks. Uh, and the other photograph is uh, by Scheltens-Abenes. Um, they're a Dutch photography duo, uh, which does sort of amazing conceptual stuff. And one of the series they did is that they, uh, it was a, a play on traditional Dutch still lifes, sort of old master painting still lifes. Um, so flowers with vases, et cetera. Um, and they photographed flowers. Uh, they cut out the flowers from the individual photographs and then rearranged all the cutouts into a, a bouquet. And then they re-photographed the bouquet of cut-out photographs. Um, it's amazing stuff. I really loved the, the sort of the, the link between um, the 17th century and the 21st century. Uh, so it's, it's it says something about the con- continuity of uh, artistic practice. Um, and it was given to, uh, to me and my wife when we got married by um, uh, as a present. So that's why it has sort of an extra uh, layer attached to it so those would be my two picks for my own collection
1: well okay i have a question on cancel culture something that is definitely related to photography being a social medium now i feel like people have become more alert as well and more aware of what should and should not be said uh which i imagine is definitely present in the art industry
0: yes yeah i mean it's present everywhere but it's it's definitely also become more present in my field. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a difficult, uh, well, it's a difficult subject matter anyway, but um, I think for a fair, you kind of have to uh, think about what you really are. Are you an objective platform or are you not? Um, I think that's a difficult, difficult standpoint, um, which I don't have entirely clear answer for, except for the fact that if I think things are really uh, unacceptable so if there's a depiction of um, just terrible terrible bigotry or, or whatever or abuse um, then maybe in the past it would have been easier to say well we're just a platform I mean the content is is dependent on, on the galleries or the artist it's not our responsibility but it's the artistic responsibility of the artist and the one representing them maybe that's changed a bit on the other hand um, you have to. You have to also. You know. You have to be involved. Um, but it's difficult to choose side from a moral perspective. There's always a discussion and two sides to a story, um, and the difficult part is is um, well being uh, held accountable to this um, more aggressively recently. I mean, cancel culture has led to um, a lot of quite significant. Um, decisions uh, which are mostly symbolic so again as a specific example there was an artist recently here in the Netherlands and he uh, there was a huge article in the newspaper about him abusing um, his girlfriends which is absolutely horrible of course Um, but this this sort of the fire jumped over into all sorts of people and institutions that had once exhibited him Um, And there was a guy at a cultural institution, exhibitions program, that lost his job because he didn't condemn him as um, completely as he he should have. Um, So, you know, that's that's an element of cancel culture where I think the nuance has maybe uh, disappeared a bit and there can be quite severe... Consequences for if you don't condemn something strongly and immediately uh, enough. So it's it's definitely a factor that I have to take into account um, for the platform that I'm I'm responsible for. Um, even though you know privately I'd, I'd 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 prefer maybe less extreme and absolute binary um, canceling or supporting.
1: I I can imagine I can imagine it's something that you always keep in mind, especially today. Um, But yeah, things are never really black and white. Um, Precisely. I want to move into our final section, um, which we call Real Talk. What is an unconventional truth that you believe helped achieve your success?
0: Good. That's a good, good, good question. I think, and this is, this is quite personal, but for me, it was the um, acceptance for myself. Um, That it's okay to rather uh, fail on my own terms um, than to either succeed or fail on someone else's terms. Um, So what was hugely frustrating for me in the beginning was, especially when I was younger. um, I mean, I I suppose as an entrepreneur, you have to be kind of strong-headed and um, stubborn anyway, (laughs) Um, But this was sometimes at odds with, you know, being young and and maybe people knowing more and having more experience. Um, So for me, it was always a balance between learning to listen to people who know better or know more or have more experience. Um, But also sometimes just really thinking, you know, I don't agree. I think this should be done differently. Um, And quite often in the beginning, I would think, well, I think I know better, but maybe it's more sensible, although I completely disagree, it's more sensible to listen to someone else. Um, and then if I did listen to someone else and it still went south, uh, that was incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Uh, to fail on someone else's terms was just, um, um, it, it, it didn't work for me. So um, I'm not saying don't listen to anyone and be stubborn. But it was liberating for me to allow myself, at least, to fail on my own terms. So um, quite often, especially when you start out, and I suppose for an entrepreneurs as well, a failure is 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 a difficult thing, uh, especially when you're young. You kind of think like, "Oh, failures terrible. I don't want to fail. I don't want you know things to uh, to go bad or to go south." Um, and as you grow older and you have a bit more experience, you kind of learn that you know failure is actually uh, a way to learn. Um, so that's as soon as I allowed myself to, to, to kind of fail on my own terms, I knew it, I could I could much easier translate that failure into into growth um, than if I if I would fail on someone else's terms or even succeed or even succeed on someone else's terms, because I mean, it's good to be successful, of course, but you don't learn from being successful on someone else's terms.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You you set the bar for yourself and if you're the one who defines your success, you're the only one who can decide if you did.
0: Yeah, and I mean exactly. And if you if you put in your heart and you still feel, you don't have to be upset by that. That's all fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for all of your, your great stories and pieces of advice. We we have one more question left. Um if you could invite anyone in the world you want for an interview on our podcast, who would you invite?
0: Funny thing. um, I think I suppose a a more traditional way of thinking about this is inviting someone you agree with. Um, But I've I've experienced that you learn more from confronting or confronting sounds a bit aggressive, (laughs) but uh, uh, speaking with someone that you disagree with, um, And trying to find common ground. So I would invite someone that I agree less with. I mean, um, so let's say, for instance, um, I would be really interested in uh, hearing the true thoughts from someone like, for instance, President Trump. Just because I could not, you know, I can't wrap my head around some of the things this guy's done. uh, And I'd, I'd, I'd like to understand more of what frustrates me. So someone like that.
1: I really like this approach. Actually, we've never uh, we've never had an answer like this before. Um, but yeah, it's true. Discomfort is the best place from from which to have a productive conversation, I guess.
0: Yeah, as 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 long as you if you open yourself up to um, not being right uh, or you open yourself up to, to learning something, you can only grow if you... Um, if you learn something that you don't already. So if you, if you put yourself in an echo chamber of people who think uh, precisely alike, it might be comforting, but it's not necessarily conducive to growth.
1: Absolutely. Well, now that Trump has more time, maybe we'll try to get in touch with him and get him on the <laughs> podcast.
0: <laughs> that, that would be amazing, wouldn't it?
1: Would you come and join us if we do? Yeah, sure. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much, Roderick, for your time. Um, it's been really great.
0: My absolute pleasure.
1: And um, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in to the Talk Tank. See you next week or leave a message after the beep.